I love sweets, especially ice cream. And this is something that I blame my grandfather for. Because when I was little and I would go stay at their house, my grandpa would always take me to go get a McDonald's ice cream cone. Now you can debate me on which fast food restaurant you think serves the best soft serve ice cream cone, but for me, the nostalgia of McDonald's will always win. Now when I order an ice cream for McDonald's or anywhere else really, I always want it in a cone. And specifically, not just any cone, I want the classic cake cone, okay? Not the sugar, the classic cake cone. Because my most favorite part of this treat is when the ice cream gets all smushed down to the bottom of the cone in that crisscross pattern at the very end, and you take those last couple of bites. Oh, there's just something about that that is so delicious and satisfying and just the perfect end to a wonderful treat like ice cream. I've passed my love of ice cream on to my children, and on the first and last day of school, we celebrate the beginning or the end of the school year by going to get ice cream. It's just one small way that we celebrate, and I show them that I love them and I'm proud of them. Now, one time, when my kids were small, there was one evening that all the adults in my family, so my siblings and their spouses and my parents, went out to dinner, and we left all of the kids at my house with a babysitter. So after dinner, we decided that we were going to stop and get ice cream at one of our favorite ice cream places, Sweet Retreat. Now, as we were there, we decided that we should graciously, I might add, get all of the kids some ice cream as well and take it back to our house to enjoy. One of my children, who remained nameless, was a little upset that their ice cream came in a cup and not a cone, and did not fully comprehend the fact that ice cream in a cone on the ride home would have been rather disastrous. Now, as I was enjoying my own ice cream, in a cone, I might add, there were more questions about how come they couldn't have got a, a cone put on top of the ice cream in the cup because that is something that Sweet Retreat will do. Oh, how we always want what we do not have. I reminded them of the importance of being thankful and grateful for what we have and to please stop complaining. And then came the big ask. Mom, can I have the rest of your cone? <sighs> I will admit, I really considered allowing this to be a hard-learned life lesson in gratitude. Because you see, we could have, number one, just eaten ice cream at Sweet Retreat, and all of the children would have been none the wiser. But honestly, the real reason was I was almost to the end of my cone. I was mere bites away from the best part. And I had strategically made sure my ice cream had gotten all the way down to the bottom of that cone. But those big sweet eyes and the tiny little voice convinced me otherwise. And I graciously handed over the last few precious bites of my cone. 
And as I was doing so, all I could think was, you have no idea how much I love you if I am willing to give this up. <laughs> At the exact same time, my sister-in-law said, wow, your mom must really love you if she's giving you the end of her cone. Now, I would have and still would give my kids anything I have. Because a parent's love can be unexplainable and deeper than any child really fully comprehends, I think, until they have children of their own. This morning, we're going to look at our Heavenly Father's love for us. Love that is even more unexplainable and deeper than we, his children, will ever be able to fully comprehend. And he has given us something far better than the last few bites of an ice cream cone. He gave us his one and only son to save us. Last week, Tim ended his sermon in 1 John 2, verses 28 through 29. And they perfectly set the stage for where we're going to go today in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3. And this is uh, what those verses said. Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John refers to his readers as dear children, and he is encouraging them to continue on in their relationship with the Lord, because John knows that if we see Jesus as the one, the only one who justifies us, we will know without a doubt that our identity comes from him. Often we can justify our actions, think that we aren't that bad, or maybe even just kind of dabble in Jesus, thinking our good works will justify us. But we will see as we continue to read in chapter 3 that this text is addressed to those who identify with Jesus, with his saving work on the cross, not on our own works. But no matter where you find yourself this morning, I want to encourage you to lean into the truth of the text this morning and ask the Lord to speak to your heart. Would you just pause with me and pray for a minute as we um, prepare to read the rest of our scripture? God, we thank you for the honor of coming um, and opening up your word corporately together today. God, we thank you um, for the truth that is found in scripture God, for how it is alive and active and changes us. God, I pray that you would remove the distractions that we've walked in with today, that you would help us to focus on what you have for us to learn. And Father God, I pray that you would boldly speak through me today. May your words be what comes out of my mouth, and God, may you move in a mighty way this morning. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so let's start in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. John is spurring his readers on to continue in him, in their relationship with the Lord, which we just read about in the last couple of verses, because we are his children. This relationship is built on love, on the Father's love for us, that he would send his one and only son to the earth as a baby to live a perfect, sinless life, to die the death that we, his children, deserved, 
and to defeat death by rising again. All so that we, his children, can have an intimate relationship with him when we submit our lives to him as Lord and Savior. This submission brings about new life, death of our old sinful selves and new birth in Christ because of his finished work on the cross on our behalf. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to save us. Just as a child entering the world does nothing to be added to their family, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves so that we can be called children of God. And I love that John uses the word lavished in this verse. Lavish means this, bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities on. Generous and extravagant. The Lord gives of his love generously in great extravagance in a way that we will never fully comprehend. And we aren't just given bits and pieces of his love. It is lavished on us. This love the Father has for us is deep and wide and long and high and something that we as humans do not fully comprehend. And depending on what type of a relationship you have with your earthly father or had with your earthly father, this might be a hard concept to let really sink in deep. Sometimes this earthly father relationship is hard and has let us down or even fully abandoned us. But even if you have a great relationship with your dad and he is an amazing father, our earthly love will never compare to the sacrificial and complete love of our heavenly father. No matter how great or how incomplete our earthly father's love for us is, we can experience the actual definition of love based on God's love for us and the goodness of his character because we are children of God. And this title is fact, not feelings, and it is a gift. All right, let's finish up, finish up verse one. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John is contrasting the fact that since we are God's children, the world, those who are not followers of Jesus, do not know us. They do not understand the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf because they, the world, do not realize their need for a savior. Jesus told his disciples this in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. 
They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. But we have also been given this promise that we can read about in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We belong to Christ, and we are his children. John continues in 1 John 3, 2 with this encouragement. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and we will be, um, and what we will be has not been yet made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall, shall see him as he is. While we don't fully know how we'll be like Christ, we do know with certainty that when Christ returns to this earth again in the second coming, that if we are found in him, if our identity is in him, we will be made like him. We will be set free from sin and pain, and we will have a much deeper and more in-depth understanding than we do now on earth. Because as we just read, we will see him as he is. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As I was studying, I came across um, this quote. There's several that I'm going to refer to in my sermon. It'll be up on the screen in just a second. But David Walls and Max Allen, uh, Anders said it this way. When we see Jesus, our understanding will expand and we will see it all. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 phrases it, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. This process of transformation, which is slow and uneven here on earth, will be rapid and complete when we see Jesus. I think that's pretty incredible. As we just read in 1 John 3, the end, uh, 2, the end of that verse tells us, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul further explains the difference between God's children and the world in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
For I, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be made like his glorious body. What an incredible promise. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. Because we are children of God, our hearts, our minds, and the way that we live our lives should be set on eternal things. Not on things of this earth that will spoil and fade, change and let us down. What truly matters is that our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. And as children of God, our hope is found in him and him alone. 1 John 3, 3 says, All who have this hope... In him purify themselves just as he is pure. Our hope is in Christ when we place our trust and our lives in the hands of our Heavenly Father. We are purified because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Just as he is pure, we are made pure because of his sacrifice on our behalf. But this also requires that we remove, avoid, or confess temptations in our lives that lead us into sin. Paul encourages this type of purity in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the state stain and guilt of sin. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. We are purified by obeying the truth. The truth that Jesus came, lived sinlessly, died in our place, and rose again victoriously. And we should be reflecting this loving, sacrificial act when we interact with others. We love because he first loved us. John continues with this theme of sin as we read in verse 4. It says this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So the Greek word for sin, um, which I'm not, it's going to be up on the screen here in just a second. Uh, I'm not going to try, I'm going to butcher it. That's where uh, Mike shines, not me. Um, but it's basically a missing of the mark is what it's, it stands for. Do we not have that slide? Oh, that's not good. Whoopsies. Okay, pretend it's up there, all right? 
so the, it was what they're all wrongdoing is sin. Okay, a missing of the mark is what in Greek sin means. All wrongdoing is sin. As, uh, again, I was studying, we, um, I came across um, another quote that I'm going to read for you that I think really helps us understand this more in-depth idea of what sin is and its effect. Lawlessness is the essence, not the result of sin. Thus exposed in its ugly reality, the seriousness of sin emerges. The Reddicks seem to have taught that the enlightened Christian questions of morality were a matter of indifference. Today, our sins are excused either by euphemisms like personality problems or by a plea of cultural relativity. In contrast to such underestimates of sin, John declares that it is not just a negative failure, but essentially an active rebellion against God's known will. It is important to acknowledge this because the first step towards holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin. I think most of us would agree that God is good and he has a good and pleasing will. And his will is that we would not sin. So in turn, we ought to detest going against God's will because that's sin. And Jesus came and had to die for our sin. When we sin, we miss the mark. We go against the word of truth. And I think sometimes we don't understand the seriousness of our sin. We justify it away we think that it's not that bad. But Jesus came and died for that sin. But, but there is hope. 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And in him, there, and in him is no sin. Jesus Christ was 100% sinless. No sin was in him. No sin will ever be within him. Sin and Christ are incompatible. That is why we needed him to come to earth so that he could take away our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as Tim said last week, we are made right. We are made righteous because of Jesus. Because of his finished work on the cross, we are made right. And when the Father looks at us, he sees his Son. Our wrongdoings, our sin, our missing the mark is forgiven. It's washed clean and made right because of Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right. It is only Jesus, because in him there is no sin. And all that we are asked to do is to believe 
that we are made right through Jesus' finished work on the cross. All right, let's get back to our text for today and finish our final verse. 1 John 3, 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This verse is not saying that we will never sin again once we've submitted our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. There was only one sinless man who walked this earth, and that was Jesus. But there is a difference between committing a sin and continuing to sin. As we just read, it says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Last time I got to teach, we talked about the difference between deliberate and circumstantial sin. Deliberate sin is when we put ourselves into situations or surround ourselves with people that we know will not be good for us. When we put ourselves into tempting situations, whatever that might be, deliberate sin is a continual on-purpose choice. Circumstantial sin happens when we don't respond in a Christ-like manner to a situation or a circumstance that we find ourselves in, or maybe a challenge that we are facing at the moment. Verse 6 is talking about this as well. We will all sin. We are human, but there is a difference to not responding in a Christ-like manner to a circumstance Versus continually putting ourselves in situations where we know we will fall into the temptation of sin. We will face enough circumstantial sin in life that we don't need to add even more deliberate opportunities for ourselves. My questions for us would be this. Some things for us to think about as we look at this idea of are there areas in our lives where we're continuing to sin, where we keep on sinning. Who are we surrounding ourselves with? What are we allowing ourselves to consume, both visually and audibly? What situations are we putting ourselves in that may be leading us into continual sin? 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for our God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Our actions Our words, the way that we live our lives matter. And they matter because they show the world around us whether or not we belong to Christ. Our actions and our claims of faith must match. Without this compatibility, there will be no fruit, no growth, no evidence of sanctification and growth. We cannot claim to be in him to have a personal relationship with Christ and not have fruit. I mean, well, I guess we could. 
But verse 6 tells us, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We can make all the claims that we want, but we have to put our money where our mouth is. Our actions need to back up our faith. I could claim to teach a specific college communication studies course. But without my name as the instructor of record, that means nothing. Let me give you an example. Could I teach argument and debate? Yeah, I could. I have the education, I have the experience, but do I teach that class? No, I do not. I could claim that I do, but if someone went and searched for my argument and debate class on the course listing at, at any of the colleges that I teach at, they would quickly learn that I am a fraud. Now, I do teach communication studies courses, but I don't teach that specific one. I never have. There's no action to back my claim. We need to be striving to live like Christ, to reflect his character in all that we say and do. Douglas Mangum said it this way, one cannot abide in Jesus and claim to see or know him and continue to sin. There are habitual sins in our lives, or are there? Think about it with me for a second. Are there habitual sins in our lives that are preventing us from growing in our relationship with Christ? Habitual sins can make us blind, can keep us in the dark, and can bring separation between us and our loving Heavenly Father. And these habitual sins can easily become an idol. Because when they become a habit, we desire to continue in that sin more than we desire to submit that area of our lives over to Jesus. When this happens, we begin to care more about continuing in sin and our comfort of this habitual sin than about we care about Jesus and his finished work on the cross that offers us freedom from that sin. We need to break free from sin. And we do so by confessing our sin, by asking the Lord to help us, and by being careful to not put ourselves into situations where we will be tempted to continue in sin. And we also need accountability we need community, and we need people who love us that are willing to ask us those really hard questions and to keep us accountable and to point us towards Jesus. We need to be willing to be vulnerable and real with people in our lives, to bring our sin from the darkness into the light by sharing what we are struggling with in an honest and a vulnerable way. Because hidden sin keeps us in darkness when there is so much freedom that is found in the light. Now, I 100% understand that this is not easy. I'm speaking to myself here just as much as I am to all of you. It's not easy to be real and vulnerable, especially when it comes to sharing or confessing our sin. But there is such beauty in sharing with others. 
and humbly asking someone else to come alongside of us, to pray for us, to check in on us, and to love us through and in spite of our sin. We need each other so we can spur one another on in our relationship with the creator who loves us completely. I know I've experienced this incredible gift of community and accountability in my life. It's something that is so beautiful and it builds such a connection with each other. And it reminds us we're not the only one messing up. Right? We, we're all sinful. We're all going to mess up. We're not going to do things perfectly. But when we can come and humbly say, I need help. I need prayer. I need somebody to ask me if I'm doing this habit over and over again. Or if I'm making changes in my life to help that temptation to be removed. We need each other. On this earth, we can sometimes see or experience a father's love through our earthly fathers or the fathers that we get to witness within our community. I know for myself, I have an incredible honor of being loved really well by my own dad. And I get to watch my husband love our kids in a sacrificial way as well. But even the most loving, dedicated earthly father's love will never compare to the love of our heavenly father. We are children of God, and he has given us something that is far, far better than those last few bites of an ice cream cone. He gave us his son. Something I was thinking about and really convicted of this morning as I was studying um, is how often I take God's love for granted. And as I was reading through my notes and reading through the scripture, I felt so convicted of that. Why, 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 why do I do that? Why do I take God's love for granted? It is deep and wide and always there. And I started to think, how do I not do that? I think one way is we have to spend time in Scripture we need to love this book. This book needs to be something that is a part of our daily lives. Because you know how we learn about his love? By reading it. But we also learn about his love by pausing and, and sitting in the fact of remembering what God has done in our lives in the past. We get so busy striving forward in life that we miss opportunities to pause and to sit and remember what God has done in the past. How he has loved us in the most complete and perfect way. I think that's what we need to do. We need to let ourselves sit in this deep, deep love that God has for us and not take it for granted. Because we are children of God, and he loves us. And what a great gift that the Father has lavished his love on us, generously and extravagantly. And may we lean into this love to sit in it, 
to soak it in. And may our lives reflect his love as we lean into the habit of spiritual growth. Not continual sin. Because his love for us should exude out of every part of our being. Because we've experienced it. Because we know it. Because we want other people to feel his love too. And may it should exude out of every part of our being in all that we say and do because our identity is found in him and him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that your love is so deep that we will never fully comprehend on this side of heaven. God, thank you that you love us in the most pure and complete way God, that your love is so incredibly deep and that, God, you, God the Father, you loved us enough to send your Son to this earth to die in our place and to rise again victoriously, to take on our sin, for he faced separation from you, God the Father, because he took on our sin, took our place. But, God, we know that death did not hold him. And we thank you, Father, that there is hope in the fact that our identity is found in you. Father, may the love that we experience, and God, maybe, maybe we've been pushing that love away. And Father, if we have, may we sit in that love. May we allow that love to soak in deep and experience it so in turn we can go and we can love other people in a Christ-like way that reflects the love that you have so generously and extravagantly lavished on us. In your name I pray, amen.